welcome to Tez Podagogy. This is the podcast which brings you everything that you need to know about teaching and learning, produced by the editors and writers at Tez. We interview leading academics, start debates about pedagogy, and take deep dives into some of the big issues facing classroom teachers today. This season will bring you a wealth of new guests who will all shine a light on their research and how it translates into the classroom. We will also dig into our archive to bring you the best episodes from past seasons. These have all been chosen because they continue to have relevance for teachers today. I'm Kate Parker, a features writer at TES, and this week we're going back to 2019 when then Deputy Commissioning Editor Sophia Neemptus spoke to Dr. Peter Etchells about the long-term and short-term effects of video games. Etchells is a Professor of Psychology and Science Communication at Bastogne University. There, he studies the behavioural effects of playing video games. Now, video gaming has seen a huge spike in activity during the pandemic. According to research published by Ofcom, 92% of 16 to 24 year olds said that they spent time playing video games during 2020. More than half of them agreed that it helped to get them through the various lockdown restrictions. The research also found that three quarters of 5 to 15 year olds played online games in 2020. This rises to 8 out of 10 participants when you just factor in 12 to 15 year olds. By comparison, only half of 5 to 7 year olds played games online. However, the research did find that a quarter of preschoolers were online gaming in 2020, with parents saying that nearly half of children aged 3 to 4 now have their own tablet, and nearly 1 in 20 have their own smartphone. In this podcast, Etchells explains what the research tells us about the impact of gaming on children and argues that actually the moral panic around gaming is unfounded. To begin with, he shares his background as a gamer and his experience in turning to games as a means of support through difficult and emotional times. Yeah, so I've been playing video games, well, as long as I can remember, really. Um, I remember one of my first consoles, not really a console, but the Atari ST, mm-hmm. which is a brilliant thing. I was, I was probably about three or four at the time, probably playing games that I shouldn't have been playing at that age, but never mind. It was it was all good fun. Um and yeah, I've just, uh, it's something that I've done all my life since then, really. And, and when I was writing the book, I didn't really think so much about how games had had an impact on my life up until that point. And when I started writing it, I sort of really started interrogating why I was playing different games at different times in my life and how they were maybe helping me um, with different things that had happened. Yeah, I saw so you you reference in the book, um, sort of turning to books as uh, to books to games as a, a coping mechanism through sort of like difficult emotional times. How do you think they help? It's a really good question, and I don't think there's a universal answer for everybody. I think it, it depends on who you are, and it depends on what games you play, and what else is going on in your life around you. Um, but from my own personal experience, I found that some games have just helped me um just give me a little bit of space i guess just to process things that are happening around me so one thing that i talk about a lot in the book is death of my dad um, and he had motor neuron disease um and when he was first diagnosed you know we had this big conversation around what it was and the tests that he'd been having and what it what it maybe meant for the next few years and i was about 11 when that happened and it was just too big it was a massive thing and i just had to go away for a little bit and do something else and i guess that's the same for a lot of people but the do something else for me was to play video games for a bit just to let my brain have that little space to figure out what the hell had just happened 
And that doesn't tend to be the way that gaming is presented in the media. We, as you know, uh, yeah, we've got this huge kind of moral panic around gaming at the minute. Uh, why do you think that is? That's another really good question. And it's something that I've really thought about over the past few years, because I, I don't think there's a simple answer to it. I think part of it is that if you don't play video games, if you watch somebody playing them, it looks like a really jarring experience, right? It looks like they're completely absorbed by this thing and there's nothing else that that's relevant to them around them and all those sorts of things. So it looks as though it's not good for you. It's in, unwholesome in some way. Of course, you know, if you're actually playing the games, you might be talking to people around the world or playing with friends and stuff. So it's a very different social experience. So I think that's one of the things. I think also it's quite hard to get into games if you want to. So something that we talk about quite a lot at the minute is how do we navigate conversations around, you know, if your kids play video games, but you don't, mm -hmm. how do you facilitate those interactions so that you can help them find the right sorts of games to play, as it were? Um, and that's, that's an easy conversation to have if, say, we were talking about books or movies. So, you know, if you've never watched a movie before, all you need to do is turn the TV on and sit down and watch something, right? And if it's a rubbish movie that you don't get, all you need to do to fix that is find a different movie and sit down and watch it. The barrier to entry is really low. If you want to start getting into video games for reasons, say, other than you're interested in playing them, you know, you want to kind of navigate these sorts of um, parental conversations, maybe. Um, let's say you buy a PlayStation 4 and you pull it out of the box, you untangle all of the wires, you plug it into your TV, turn it on, need to connect to the Wi-Fi, so you find your Wi-Fi code, connect it to that, and then it starts downloading an update and it looks like it's broken and that happens for like two hours and then it's finally downloaded the update and then, then you can put the game in. Put the game in, has to download an update for the game, that can take like two hours, then you've got to try and figure out how to use the controller. And all of that happens before you even actually start playing the game. Right? Mm. So then you're playing the game and you're going to be rubbish at it the first time you play it. And it takes time to get to a point where you're good enough at it that it becomes an enjoyable, immersive experience. So that barrier to entry for playing games is really high. Um, and obviously that's going to put off a lot of people. I think as well, it's like many things, something that came out of counterculture. Mm. So there's a very... Um, big um, underground movement, as it were, around video games in the in the 70s and 80s that didn't kind of align with mainstream sensibilities. So you put all of these things together uh, and couple it with things like the World Health Organization saying gaming disorder is now a thing. Essentially, in, in the absence of any other public engagement around that announcement. And inevitably what's going to happen is the newspapers will fill the void and what they'll do is they'll find the most popular video game that's around at the minute, Fortnite, they'll find pronouncements that games are addictive. And that's where you get headlines saying that Fortnite's an addictive game. So I was just going to come on to this. So I've got a nephew who plays Fortnite, I wouldn't say addictively, but every second that he possibly can. And we, my sister and I tried to um, to do that whole like parental engagement thing. Mm. So we tried to play and there's this really funny video of us uh, with just my nephew being like, auntie, why are you shooting at the sky all the time? Because we were just like, we were so, so bad at Fortnite. Um, but we've talked about this a lot because it does feel it's it's such a huge part of his life. And maybe yeah. addiction is the wrong word, but it's a lot. Mm. Like what, yeah, how can parents, how should parents be looking at games like Fortnite that do seem to be yeah, taking up a lot of time? So I think one of the annoying things that came out of this big announcement around gaming disorder is that if you look at the science behind it, actually 
we don't really know how many people are addicted to video games, but it's going to be a very, very, very low number. Mm. So the first thing to say is that, you know, if you're worried about your kids playing video games, chances are they're probably not addicted to it. That's all well and good for me to say. And you go, oh, okay, it's fine. They're not addicted. But, you know, I'm still having these annoying conversations with them, trying to get them to stop playing games. Um, that's a really hard um, discussion to navigate around, really. We've, certainly from scientific research base, we've not got much that can help. Mm. At the minute, there's, there's some evidence that suggests that how you frame conversations around video games can be quite helpful. So rather than taking an authoritarian approach and say you're only allowed two hours of video game play per day, um, that's the rule and we're going to stick to it. If you don't stick to it, everything's going in the bin. Um, what you tend to find is that if you ask kids, you know, how would you react to this sort of situation, they tend to say that they'd rebel against it, which is what kids do. Um, but worryingly, they'd hide their tech use. So they'd still do things online, but they wouldn't they conceal it from the parents. And that's a situation that we really don't want to get into. If you frame the conversation around, say, saying things like, well, this is, this is what I feel about these games or this technology. Um, why do you want to play them? What do you get out of it? Um, you know, and have a bit more of a collegiate collaborative conversation with um, kids where they feel as though they're equal partners in that conversation. The research is out there so far. It's not much, but it tends, tends to show that, you know, they're still going to rebel because they're kids, um, but they're much less likely to hide their tech use. So it's all about kind of managing those expectations, I think. Other than that, we've really not got much in the way of advice. You know, I'd love to be able to say the research suggests that you should have no more than an hour of fortnight per day, but it doesn't, it doesn't say that. There's a lot of evidence that suggests that hard time limits on these things tend to backfire. So I think in the case of something like Fortnite, I mean, I, I don't think Fortnite's a particularly good game, to be honest. You know, when I play it, I kind of... It, it it acts more of a, a marathon simulator for me more than anything else. Mm. So I always forget to jump out of the bus. So I'm at the edge of the map and I just run for about 20 minutes towards the centre of the map and then get shot. <laughs> and that's that's my Fortnite gaming experience. It's very unfulfilling. Um, but, you know, I got playing Fortnite, started playing Fortnite about a year ago just to see what all the fuss mm. was about. And I think that's... That's something where having the advantage of bringing, being brought up playing games offers me. The, you know, I can I can pick up a console and I know how to work it and I know how to download a game and get into it. I'm you know fairly familiar with how control systems work, so I can pick it up and try and figure out what this game is actually about fairly quickly. Um, my feeling is that we've got a generation of parents that are starting to grow up who are in a similar sort of position, right? So they've, they've also grown up playing video games and they're able to maybe navigate those sorts of conversations a little bit more uh, knowingly, as it were. Um, but, you know, there's still a lot of work going on in this sort of area about what, what kind of would constitute good guidelines, useful guidelines for, for video game use. I think another thing that gets lost in these conversations sometimes is that all video games have ratings, age mm. ratings, in the same way that movies have ratings, right? And very often, for reasons that I'm not quite clear on, maybe it's because games are always seen as a childish thing, um, where somebody might really strictly adhere to movie ratings, they don't do the same with video game mm. ratings when you know they are there for a reason. So I think a, lo a, a wider awareness and appreciation of those rating systems and, and and why they're in place i think would help with these conversations as well i remember that what's the rating on call of duty is it 18 yeah i think so it's uh, i can't remember the it's either 16 or 18 because I, when i was a teacher 
I we there would just be the day that Call of Duty came out mm. where there would just be so many kids absent or asleep at their desk because they just stayed up all night playing it. Yeah. It was so obviously not for their aid, but there was no even there was not even a question that they wouldn't play Call of Duty. It's like, well, of course you will because that's the game. It's it's really hard, isn't it? Those sorts of um, situations because it's not just as simple as saying, you know, this you take a bunch of fourteen year olds. This is an eighteen rated game. You can't play it because it might be the case that they've got all the siblings or their parents play them, and then they can get their hands on them that way. And these things will inevitably kind of filter through to um, to lower age groups. But I think. Yeah, we, we don't really see that so much with um, movies now, for instance, because there are these stricter enforcement rules around them. And I think, you know, nothing's going to change overnight, um, but a shift towards appreciating those a little bit more and a, a wider understanding of um, of these sorts of games and, and other sorts of games that might be more appropriate for them to play, I think, is a useful tactic as well. So, you know, one approach is to say, you know, if you know a lot about video games, and your child comes along and says, you know, I really want to play Call of Duty. You say, well, I don't think it's an appropriate game for you for these sorts of reasons. Why don't we play this instead? And you can come up with something that's comparable in terms of interest and competitiveness, more age appropriate, something that you can play with them, that they can play with their friends as well, you know, like Rocket League or something like that. Um, and you can kind of deflect them. So it's not just that you're not allowing something, but you're you know, providing something in its place. There's a belief in society that if you play violent video games, you will in turn become violent. Etchell says this is completely untrue. Here, he explains why. It's tiny, it's weak, it's really not worth worrying about, I don't think. So this this is, it's something that has captured the attention of psychologists for about 30 years. I would say about 90% of research, psychological research in into video games covers this topic, I think, because it's so salient and it's so divisive. But it's also, I feel like it's deflected away from more interesting questions that we could have been asking asking about video games. Even the basic things about why why we play them, what motivates us to play them. There is some good research out there. Not much, though. It's quite hard and annoying when the tagline for my book was why we play <laughs> video games. Because I think people are so focused on this. And I get why they're focused on it, because what happens is that you have these mass acts of societal violence, usually in the U.S., mm. And when something like that happens, it's human nature to want to try and find a reason behind it, right? So you delve into the um, the perpetrator's past, and because lots of people play video games, it will crop up at some point. So, um, and then those kind of causal influences are made, usually in the media. Um, so, on the one hand, you know, you can argue, and I think it's right to argue that. Trying to figure out whether there are there are some people out there for whom, if they play a certain type of video game under certain conditions, they're at higher risk of hurting themselves or hurting somebody else, is an important question to ask. It's an important societal question. Um, the problem comes in terms of how you actually try and tackle that question in the lab. So, if you think about basic psychological experiment setup, probably what you do is get two groups of people who are fairly comparable, mm. give one of them a violent game to play, one of them a non-violent game to play, and then you test them on some sort of measure of aggression or violence afterwards. You want to see whether the only thing that's different between those two groups is the type of game that they played. Does it have an effect on their aggression levels or violence levels? Now, if we're asking that in the context of um, are they going to go out and shoot people, then... It might be the case that what you want to do as your aggression measure or violence measure is stick them all in a room with each other with a gun 
and see how many people survive. Right? Right. Ethically, that's a little bit dubious. <laughs> so what we have to do as psychologists is come up with proxy measures of aggression where we can make sure that our participants are safe, they're not at risk of harm, but we're still measuring something that maybe looks like aggression in some way. And this is where the problem starts, right? Because how do you get something that looks like these things that we're worried about in the real world, but isn't actually going to hurt somebody in the lab? There are some measures out there. They're not particularly good. So probably the most widely used one. I'm going to nerd out for a second. I apologize. Go ahead. Um, it's called the competitive reaction time task. So people play the video game, whichever one it is. And then you say to them, okay, we're going to play a different game now. I'm going to plonk you in a room in the, in the university on your own at a computer. There's somebody else in, in another room somewhere else in the university at, at a computer. You're going to play a reaction time game. So something's going to pop up on the screen. As soon as you see it, press the space bar. And if you press it before the other person, you win. If they press it before you, you lose. And whoever wins gets to punish their opponent. So they get to blast them with a loud noise and they get to choose how long the, the, the blast louds last for and how loud it is. The other person doesn't exist. It's all controlled by the computer. Right. And the aggression measure is, you know, you're being more aggressive if you blast the other person for, for a longer period of time and with a louder noise. The trouble is because you've got two variables there, loudness and duration, which do you pick as your mm. aggression measure? Um, and there's upwards of about 150 studies in this area, not just on video games, but look, using looking at this um, in terms of aggression generally. About 150 papers out there, around about 180 ways in which people analyse the data. Mm. So some people take the mean duration, some people take the mean loudness, mean duration times the mean loudness, mean duration times the root of the, so on and so forth. Um there was a study that came out a few years ago that showed that if you take our data set and analyze it in all the different ways you can see in the literature, then you can basically find whatever you want. You can find very strong effects showing that video games do cause aggression, or you can find null effects showing that there's no link whatsoever. And that's all to do with what you do with the data. It's not to do with the data itself. It's all down to the decisions that you make as a researcher about how you're going to run your study. Um, rather than an actual signal in the data that you're getting from the participants. So we kind of got into this situation with that research literature where, you know, if you see a particular researcher's name who has a past history of publishing research showing that video games do cause aggression, you don't need to look at the rest of the paper. You know what that paper is going to say. Um, so on the face of it, you do, a, you do a quick Google search for this sort of stuff. And it shows that there's a lot of evidence that violent video games cause aggression. Actually, if you drill down into it and look at the quality of the evidence, the best research that we have out there that tries to make all of the data openly available, pre-registers the work so they kind of declare in advance what they're going to do and how they're going to treat their data before they actually collect it, all of that sort of work tends to show that there are weak associations between playing violent games and measures of aggression, but they're so small as to not worry about really. Could it also be a bit chicken and egg? Like maybe if you're having aggressive feelings, you might be like, I'm going to go and shoot someone in Call of Duty rather than kicking Yeah, them. yeah. So in terms of theories around what's going on here, there are, there are different ones. So one argues that if you play a violent video game, it activates violent thoughts in your mind. So then if you go out into the street and bump into somebody, you're more likely to punch them. Yeah. So that's one model. Another model is that, you know, you have a rubbish day at work, you're feeling really annoyed, go home, you play Call of Duty for a bit and let off some steam and actually you become less aggressive. That sort of study, so it's called the catharsis model, that sort of model seems to tie in with um, data that we've got at a general level looking at things like acts of 
uh, violent crime and murder and things, those things have been declining since the 1970s. Um, so if you were expecting that video games are making everybody more aggressive, you'd expect that that, you know, it, it should be going up and it's not. It might be the case that if if video games are making people aggressive, that the rate of decline would have been quicker if, mm. if we didn't have them. But, you know, they're going down. So it's it's clearly not having a, a strong positive effect on on, on violent tendencies. Um, there are there are some neat studies that tend to show that if you if you look at when certain high profile video games like Grand Theft Auto Five and um, some of the Call of Duty games are released, you see a um, so if you kind of look at uh, violent crimes and things like that in the context of when those games come out, then there's a, a lag of about a month. So a game comes out and about a month later, crime crime levels drop. So you know I'm not saying that those games stop people from committing violent crimes, but what we what we might expect if video games do cause aggression is the opposite sorts mm. of effect. So that's the trouble with this sort of stuff, right? Mm. So you, you, you're always looking for kind of proxy measures of the thing that you actually care about. And because in some cases with experimental work, there's flexibility in the way that you can look at that, um, the biases that we have as researchers going into that research need to be taken into account. And it's why we've not got a clear definitive answer yet. Another criticism of video games is around screen time. Some believe that screen time leads to increased anxiety and depression, but is the research there to back this up? Or actually, are video games, as perhaps the pandemic showed, a good space for social interaction? Could there be any educational benefits to them? I think the first thing to say is that screen time is a meaningless concept. <laughs> um, it's what, what is screen time? It's Well, it's the amount of time that we spend in front of a computer or a um, smartphone or a tablet each day. Um, it's an, an attractive measure for researchers because you get a number out of it, mm -hmm. right? And you can do interesting things with simple numbers. It's useless for researchers in the sense that, you know, if you have, if you take two children and they both have three hours of screen time each, one of them is spending that time playing a video game with the parents or watching a TV show with them for a bit or using the internet to do some research for a piece of homework. And the other one is spending an hour and a half on Instagram, um, obsessing over their body image. Mm -hmm. um, they're going onto the internet to see if they can download an essay because they've not done the work for tomorrow. Those two people in a scientific study would be classed as the same, the three hours of screen time. But you would imagine that those situations, those contexts would have very, very different effects. So I think there is a move now in research to, to move away from this sort of generalized idea of screen time and really try and drill down into what we mean by that. Even things like social media are, are relatively meaningless, right? Mm. So um, I was thinking about this when I was listening to Radio 4 the other day. They were saying something like, you know, if you go on social media, the conversations are, um, are an absolute dumpster fire. Um, and I was like, in my head, that means Twitter, mm. right? But social media is Instagram, it's Facebook, it's Snapchat. And, you know, that kind of conversation, that, that sort of argument doesn't work when you think about other ones. You know, if, if, if in your head you equate social media with Instagram, that just, that, that argument just doesn't fly. It's really hard to do this. It's really hard to separate out how much time do you spend on Instagram doing what with how much time do you spend on Twitter doing what and then look at the relative effects of that. Um, which again is why you get such a diverse 
um, range of opinions from the scientific literature. But I know I'm dodging the question here because no, you, asked, you, you asked, you know, what, what can we do about that? What, what can we do to sort of navigate these conversations? Um, again, it's, I think it's about not being authoritative about these sorts of things. Um, certainly in the home, you know, again, there's not much evidence to suggest that um, hard and fast authoritarian limits on screen time really do anything other than push its use underground. Um, I think it's more about educating everybody around what these things can be used for as a force for good versus what the things are that we should be worried about or kind of um, avoid. And, you know, that means kind of educating kids about what what social media is and when it's age appropriate and, um, you know, the fact that they don't need an Instagram account at 10 years old. Mm-hmm. Um, but also talking to parents about how best to kind of keep checks on what what they're actually doing with their 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 screen time use um and if if they feel as though it's unhealthy in some way rather than just shutting everything down thinking about how you can shift it into other maybe more useful pursuits so yeah that might be you know shifting people away from social media and onto video games where you can do it as a family event uh, and actually enjoy it um i always try and take a, an evidence-based approach with stuff like that so um Unfortunately, we're not really there with anything at the minute. It's really, it's so hard to do this stuff, in part because science moves at a relatively glacial speed and the rate at which we're interacting with this sort of technology and the rate at which it changes so fast, we're always playing catch up. Um, so we need to be a little bit smarter about how we do that in terms of thinking about what the issue is going to be in two years time or three years time and how can we head those off at the pass. We're not quite there with it yet. So I'm kind of always slightly reluctant to say this is what people should be doing because. To be honest, I don't really know. <laughs> but I think it's nice that you you touched on the the force for good element. I feel like we've been quite negative. Yeah. Um. So one uh, element that I was really interested in your book was this whole kind of stereotype of the like isolated pasty white nerd. <laughs> um. And you're actually saying that games can be these hugely social spaces. Yeah. Um. Could you talk a little bit about that? Yeah. So I think this is one of the great misunderstandings about video games is that they're a socially isolating experience and. Maybe that was true 30 years ago, maybe. I'm not convinced it was massively, but it's certainly not the case now. You know, most video games are played online uh, with other people um, and you can interact with them as a result. And I'm not saying that every interaction is a positive one. You know, there's a, there's a really important debate to have be had about um, toxic online behaviours and toxic interactions between people in video games. But to be honest, I think that conversation extends beyond video games. It's about any online interactions. What you do get with video games is that when people play something online, they immediately all share a common interest with each other, which is that game that you're playing. Um, so it's quite easy to make friends online. I've been playing a game called World of Warcraft for 10 years now. Um, and there's a little guild that I'm in of about five or six people who I've never met in real life, but we're really close friends. You know, I've talked to them on Skype before, so I know that they are real people and not Russian bots. Um, And we know quite a lot about each other. And I partly play that game when I can nowadays, not to play the game really, but to go and talk to them. Um, because they're the people that I like chatting to. And, you know, just even just at the end of the day, just going, oh, you know, how's he, David? Oh, rubbish. Oh, you're going to go and kill this monster. Yeah, sure. <laughs> um, so it's just it's just a nice kind of welcoming experience. And, you know, there have been times where I've not been able to play the game for like three or four months. And I've sort of disappeared for a bit. And when I've come back, 
um, Dave, who's the leader of the guild, he's always like, ah, oh, Pete, it's great to see you. I've collected all this stuff for you while you've been away. And I just get bombarded with all these really cool things in the game. <laughs> There's really nice kind of atmosphere. And those are the sorts of stories that you miss mm. in the the big news stories about video games, melting kids' brains or or being addictive, that actually they can be this force for social good that rather than being something that socially isolates us, they, they can be a really strong medium through which we can connect with each other. Yeah, that's great. And in terms of the the educational benefit of games, because I think, again, it's that stereotype of like, we're just wasting your time, you know, <laughs> shooting, whatever, we're like getting, getting with the guild. But um, obviously there is a strong argument and, the, you know, there's a huge variety of games. Uh, there's a lot that can be gained from playing them. Yeah. So one thing that I don't do in the book is talk about the positive effects of video games in terms of the cognitive psychology research in that. So there are some studies out there that show things like um, people who play action video games have um, faster reaction times or more um, accurate spatial navigation skills or motor control and things like that. Um, I think like with the problems that we have with the whole violent games and aggression question, there are potentially similar problems there. So one thing that I didn't say about the violent games and aggression question is, so we said that aggression's a problem, but how do you define your violent and non-violent video games as well? So you might say, well, our violent group might play Call of Duty, our non-violent group might play Candy Crush Saga, right? But those two games differ in ways other than one being violent and one not violent. One's 3D first-person shooter, the other's a puzzle, one's fast-paced, one's slow-paced, one's competitive online, one's a single-player game. So if you see any differences between those groups, it might be because of one of those other things that's going on. Similar sort of issue when it comes to looking at the positive effects, how you match up mm -hmm. different games so that you can be sure that you say, well, it's this aspect of video games that leads to an improvement in this area. Very difficult thing to do. And I think a, a good example of an area where that's gone wrong, basically, is in brain training games. Mm. So a few years ago, there was this big explosion in this idea that, you know, if you play a few games where you add up sums and stuff for a few minutes each day, you will become smarter. I think in some cases, people were claiming that it will stave off dementia, mm. things like that. There's no evidence that that works whatsoever. So there's a big study that was done in 2011 where you get people to play a game that tests a particular cognitive skill. Um, so you get them to do that at the start of the experiment. And then for the next six weeks, they got them to do a different game that tests the same skill, just practice on it every day. Mm. And then at the end of the six weeks, you go back to the original game and see whether testing on a different game has improved their scores or not. So what you find is that over the six weeks, people get better at the game that they're playing. Mm -hmm. And when you test them on the original game, they're the same. <laughs> so those those skills don't seem to transfer beyond um, beyond the game that you're playing itself. And a lot of companies who've made quite um, strong claims about if you play brain training apps, um, it will improve your school grades, mm. have, have got in trouble in the US and have been um, fined millions of dollars for making those claims without any evidence base behind them. So in terms of those sorts of um, positive effects, you know, I'm a little bit cagey about the extent to which we can claim that there's anything strong there. Um, I can't remember what the other part of the question was. So. <laughs> uh, no, just uh, the the other benefits. I think the kind of the other force for good elements of computer games. Yeah. So when people say, "Oh, you know, you're playing video games. Why aren't you going outside instead and doing something better with your time?" Um, two things about that. One is that um, there's an inherent assumption that video games are an 
unhealthy or unwholesome in and of themselves, which is not true. And the second thing is that going outside is better than staying inside, which again, for a lot of people, depending on where you are, is not true. So if you can find games that are culturally meaningful or they speak to you on a personal level, then they, be, they can be quite powerful experiences. So one of the benefits that I talk about in terms of that aspect of video games in the book is their ability to allow us to explore I say in a kind of quite grandiose way what it means to be human, which I don't actually think means anything. Um, what I kind of specifically mean is that it allows us to explore different facets of human emotions in a relatively safe space. So one of the examples that I give in the book is a game that I played last year called Firewatch, which is a beautiful game, and I would recommend that everybody plays it. It's a first-person perspective game, um, and the backstory is that it's set in the late 1980s. You play a guy called Henry who is going through some difficulties at home. His wife has been diagnosed with early-onset dementia. He's not taken it very well. Her parents have got involved to take her home. And he deals with it by running off to the woods. So he, he runs off to Shoshone National Forest in Wyoming and becomes a fire lookout. And I won't spoil the rest of the 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 um the story because um it's it turns into kind of a, a little bit of a murder mystery whodunit mm. kind of um game, which is quite good. Um but you don't meet anybody else in in the uh, in the game you're just in this wilderness this really beautiful wilderness on your own for as long as you want to be and the only interaction you have with somebody else is through a walkie-talkie um, and you interact with somebody called delilah who's another fire lookout at another tower a few miles away and a lot of the game is just having banal conversations with her really so you can choose to completely open up about what's gone wrong in your life or you can be really cagey and cold and distant at one point you can start choosing to flirt with Delilah, or you can maintain a platonic relationship. And I've played it through a few times and tried different routes, and, and nothing that you do has an impact on what the end of the, the game is. Mm. Like It will always end in the same sort of way. And you kind of think, well, what's the point? You know, it doesn't matter what I say. It doesn't, what's the point in doing this then? And what I found was that actually you can start exploring what it's like to have these sorts of interactions with somebody else and how they respond in this space where I'm not actually flirting with somebody else, where I'm not actually opening up my deepest, darkest secrets with somebody else. Um, and I think the, the anecdote that I mentioned in the story is that in the, in the book is that one of the times that I played, played it through, I started flirting with Delilah and she started flirting back. And then I started going, my God, Henry, what are you doing? You're married. <laughs> And your wife's really ill. Yeah, why are you being? Why are you being so horrible? <laughs> and I felt really guilty. So then, in the next set of uh, conversations with her, I started pulling back, and then she rightly got annoyed with me. And but you know, that's an interesting mm. set. It, it kind of allows you to sort of figure out where your own moral compass is. You know, we all say, you know, "I'd like to say," you know, I, "I'm definitely not." kind of person who would flirt with somebody else actually i've tried it in a game and i know that i'm not the kind of person that would do that because it was a horrible experience so that ability to explore those sorts of things and there's a lot of games coming out at the minute that allow us to explore um grief and what it means to lose somebody and the interesting thing that i find about that is that i can think about three or four different games that all explore it in different ways and none of them go through that title trope of thinking about uh, bargaining and acceptance and depression and all of those things, which is nonsense. There's no evidence that we go through five stages of grief. Um, but they explore them in quite emotionally nuanced and complex ways. You know, I've come out of a couple of those games in absolute floods of tears, but felt better for the experience mm -hmm. afterwards because it's made me kind of 
evaluate my own relationship with loss. So I think there are this really, really powerful medium that allows us to do that. And the way that they allow us to do that is that, um, I, I'm going to steal some quotes from Naomi Alderman here. So she talks about this idea that, you know, if you, if you watch a movie, then you can be, uh, you can relate to the main character. Mm. You can uh, be happy for them when something ha- happens to them that's good, or you can be sad for them, or you can feel angry about what they've done. But in a video game, you are the main character. So you can, it's only in a video game, really, where you can be held responsible for your actions emotionally. It's only video games that make you feel guilty for your actions or make you feel a real sense of achievement when you've done something good. And I think it's that power that is such a, a force for, potential force for good with them. Yeah. And also, I guess, a potential force for, I think maybe it's that power that is scaring people because Absolutely. it's so personal. Yeah. Yeah. It could go either way. Which is yeah. why you kind of have to navigate these conversations around how they're used and in what context really carefully. Fantastic. And so I guess the big final question, uh, which I feel like we kind of touched on, but if there is anything that teachers and parents should take away from this discussion around the idea of video games, what should it be? Not to be scared of them, really. Um, I think if you don't play video games, I think it's useful to try and try them out a little bit just to kind of figure out what's what the fuss is about, really. There's some really interesting initiatives around schools at the minute. So the British Esports Association has been holding some championships through the year. And, and basically what they've been doing is setting up teams in schools. Um, so they, the, the teams will have a student who's a manager and then others who are the actual players on the, on the team. Um, and they go through kind of training sessions and things like that. It's basically an after-school club. It's all gearing up to uh, an in-school championship. And they've done a little bit of an evaluation of that um, for the first time that they did it last year. And one of the interesting things for me that came out of that was that it seemed to provide an outlet for some students who aren't traditionally kind of sports-minded, say. So kids who want to feel part of something at school, but maybe there's no club for them who like video games can get into this. And then there's a real, real sense of community around that. Um, it's also got the, it's got the added advantage of um, um, kids who have disabilities can get involved with without any barriers, re- relatively speaking, which is great. So there's some interesting stuff around some children at alternative provision schools who um, have really opened up and it seems to have made them more engaged with their um, with their subjects um, as well through having this motivation to do something that's fun. So I think games can unlock um, different relationships that that teachers have with their pupils because maybe it makes them look a bit more human if you as a teacher say oh i play this game mm-hmm. that's another thing that's come out of the, the kind of championship evaluation is that some uh, teachers who've um, had maybe antagonistic relationships with some of the students in their classes that's been completely flipped around when they found that they've got this common interest um so it provides another avenue for exploring how to improve those sorts of relationships as well um that's not to say that you know everybody should be playing video games all the time and not doing anything else i'm going to cop out here and say you know like everything in life it's everything in moderation right but i don't think that they're the big bad that we often make them out to be and we shouldn't be worried too much about i think if we worry excessively about every video game experience being a potentially addictive one then what we risk doing that Going, doing that and going down that route is, is sort of over-regulating them, mm. either at a national level or individually in terms of how we, um, how we allow our kids to, to use them. Um, and then if we do that, we potentially miss out on the, all of those potential uh, positive benefits that they've got. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of Test Pedagogy. 
Please join us again next week.